Audrey Galman <laughs> can like get, get it. it. <laughs> uh, hello, welcome oh. to Infinite Cast Part Fifteen or something. Uh, oh boy, I don't know something like that. Oh boy, oh boy. Um, I I have just made the best goddamn egg sandwich I ever made in my life. Uh, so I'm feeling full and ready to talk. I slept. Books. 12 hours last night and Great. feel like we I are tanned, use rested and ready. I've got two. the classic uh the classic b- uh, breakfast weekend breakfast bev trifecta of uh water, coffee and uh mimosas. We're back at brunch, bitches. Brunch is back. Ever since Biden got elected, I've yes. been brunching this, every day. This is what they took from you. <laughs> Shall we get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. After uh finally learning about the section that really tested my uh, French pronunciation. Le culte. Culte. Le prochain train. <laughs> but let's, let's go back to the lo- locker room. Or there, let's go back to the tennis academy. Those dangerous train boys. Uh, 3rd of November, YDAU. Because none of them really meant any of it, Hal tells Kent Blot. The end of the day, hatred of all the work is just part of the work. You think Stitt and DeLint don't know we're going to sit there together after showers and bitch? It's all planned out. The bitchers and moaners in there are just doing what's expected. But I look at these guys that have been here six, seven years, eight years, still suffering, hurt, beat up, so tired, just like I feel tired and suffer. I feel this what? Dread. This dread. I see seven or eight years of unhappiness every day and day after day of tiredness and stress and suffering stretching ahead. And for what? For a chance at a like a pro career that I'm starting to get this dready feeling a career in the show means even more suffering if I'm skeletally stressed from all the grueling here by the time I get there. Blots on his back on the shag carpet. All five of them are stretched out, splay-limbed, with their heads up supported on double-width, velourish throw pillows on the floor of VR6, one of the three little viewing rooms on the second floor of the ComAd building, two flights up from the locker rooms and three from the main tunnel's mouth. The room's new cartridge viewer is huge and almost painfully high definition. It hangs flat. Too many Ks. Too many Ks. It hangs flat on the north wall like a large painting. It runs off a refrigerated chip. The room's got no TP or phone console. Did, did flat screen TVs exist when they, I, this weirdly it was like is plasma, like plasma, right? No, or, I think in like the early '90s and late '80s when he was doing this, I still I think CRTs were like this. Did he invent the flat screen? I it it does. It is one of the most prescient near future technology uh, books. That yeah, I've, everything I've seen. is screens, and everything has come basically true. Yeah. Uh, the room's got no TP or phone console. It's very specialized, just a player and viewer and tapes. The cartridge player sits on the second shelf of a small bookcase beneath the viewer. The other shelves and several other cases are full of match cartridges, motivational and visualization cartridges, interlays, Tatsuoka, You Shit You, CyberVision, the 300-track wire, from the cartridge player up to the lower right corner of the wall-hung viewer is so thin it looks like a crack in the wall's white paint. Viewing rooms are windowless, and the air from the vent is stale. Though, when the viewer's on, it looks like the room has a window. (laughs) Very arcade fire (laughs) sentiment he has there. Uh, (laughs) 
uh, you, you know the, the song that's like, when you look at yourself in the security uh, video, you can't look at yourself in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> I love that song. Anyway, sorry, getting distracted. Hal's put on an undemanding visualization type cartridge, as he usually does for a big buddy group interface when they're all tired. He's killed the volume. He's put on the iTunes visualizer. Mm-hmm. He's killed the volume, so you can't hear the reinforcing mantra, but the picture is bright and bell clear. It's like the picture almost leaps out at you. A graying and somewhat ravaged-looking Stan Smith in an anachronistic white is at a quartz baseline hitting textbook forehands over and over again, the same stroke. His back sort of osteoporotically hunched, but his form immaculate. His footwork textbook and effortless. The frictionless pivot and back set of weight the anachronistic Wilson wood stick back and pointing straight to the fence behind him, the fluid transfer of weight to the front foot as the ball comes in, the contact at waist level and just out front, the front leg's muscles bunching up as the back legs settle, eyes glued to the yellow ball in the center of his string's stenciled W. ETA kids are conditioned to watch not just the ball, but the ball's rotating seams to read the spin coming in. The front knee dipping slightly down under bulging quads as the weight flows more forward. The back foot almost up on point on the gleaming sneaker's unscuffed toe. The no-nonsense, flourishless follow-through, so the stick ends up just in front of his gaunt face. Smith's cheeks have hollowed as he's aged. His face has collapsed at the sides. His eyes seem to bulge from the cheekbones that protrude as he inhales after impact. He looks desiccated. Aged in hot light, performing the same motions over and over for decades, his other hand floating up gently to grasp the stick's throat out in front of the face so he's flowed back into the ready stance all over again. No wasted motion, egoless strokes, no flourishes or ticks or excesses of wrist. Over and over, each forehand melting into the next. A loop, it's hypnotizing. It's supposed to be. The soundtrack says... Don't think, just see. Don't know, just flow. <laughs> over and over if you turn it up. Sounds like a good EDM song. Turn, turn off your mind and the tennis will follow. You're supposed to pretend it's you on the bell clear screen with the fluid and egoless strokes. No thoughts, head full of tennis. You're supposed to disappear into the loop and then carry that disappearance out with you to play. The kids are there. Li- the kids are lying there limp and splayed, supine, jaws slack, eyes wide and dim, a relaxed, exhausted warmth. The flooring beneath the shag is gently heated. Peter Beek is asleep with his eyes open, a queer (laughs) talent ETA seems to instill in the younger ones. Oren had been able to sleep with his eyes open at the dinner table, too, at home. (laughs) Hal's fingers, long and light brown and still slightly sticky from tincture of benzoin, which leads us to endnote 46, I love that the uh, the ETF endnotes are exclu- are pretty much exclusively explaining different types of drugs. <laughs> I know. Uh, over-the-counter topical stuff for the corticization of skin. Tincture of benzoin facilitates the development of the kinds of callus that don't get blood blisters underneath. Way more common and universal among serious players than Lemon Pledge. Finding the smell of T of B nauseous, 
Some junior players prefer an applied layer of cornstarch or baby powder, which makes the tea of B easier to wash off later, but also leaves weird little white fingerprints over everything you touch. Back to the narrative. Uh, his, his fingers are laced behind his upraised head on the pillow, cupping his own skull, watching Stan Smith, eyes heavy too. You feel as though you'll be going through the exact same sort of suffering at 17. You suffer now here, Kent. Kent Blot has colored shoelaces on his sneakers with Mr. Bouncy Bounce program <laughs> brand bow biters, which Hal finds extraordinarily artless and young. Peter Beak snores softly, a small spit bubble protruding and receding. But Blot, surely you've considered this. Why are they all still here then if it's so awful every day? Not every day, Blot says, but pretty often it's awful. They're here because they want the show when they get out, Ingersoll sniffs and says. The show, it's in all caps, or in cap letters, meaning the ATP tour, travel and cash prizes and endorsements and appearance fees, match highlights and video mags, action photos and glossy print mags. A stopover in scenic Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> But they know, and we know, one very top junior in 20, uh, in 20 even gets all the way to the show, much less survives there long. The rest slog around on the satellite tours or regional tours or get soft as club pros or become lawyers or academics like everyone else, <laughs> Hal says softly. Then they stay and suffer to get a scholarship, a college ride, a white cardigan with a letter. Girl co-eds keen on Letterman. Dude, I would love a white cardigan with a letter. I'll get you one. Can you get me a big C sweater? Yeah. Kent, except for Wayne and Pemulus, not one guy in there needs any kind of scholarship. Pemulus will get a full ride anywhere he wants, just on test scores. Stice's aunts will send him anywhere, even if he doesn't want to play. And Wayne's headed for the show. He'll never do more than a year in the ONANCAAs. <laughs> Blot's father. How, how old are these people supposed to be? Like 14? Hal, I believe, is 17. Okay, because they were talking point, about and he's seeing talking, people who were 17. The like oldest that was you can be is 18. In the future. You can be 18. Um, I mean, it's a high school. Yes, and the his little buddies, I think, are like 10s. Okay. 10s or 11s. Uh, Blot's father, a cutting-edge ENT oncologist, flew all over the world, removing tumors from wealthy mucous membranes. <laughs> Blot has a trust fund. None of that's the point, and you guys know it. They love the game, you're going to say. Stan Smith has switched to backhands. They sure must love something, Ingersoll, but how about for a second I say that's not Kent's point either. Kent's point's the misery in that room just now. KB, I've taken part in essentially that same bitter, bitchy kind of session hundreds of times with those same guys after bad PMs, in the showers, in the sauna, at dinner... Very much bitching also in the lavatories, Arslanian says. <laughs> Remember him? Yes. Hal unsticks his hair from his fingers. Arslanian always has a queer, faint, hot dogish smell about him. <laughs> oh. The point is... is racist against Armenians? Yeah, it seems like it. The point is, it's ritualistic. The bitching and moaning. Even assuming that they feel the way they say when they get together. The point is, notice, we were all sitting there, all feeling the same way, together. The point is togetherness? Shouldn't there be violas for this part, Hal, if this is the point? <laughs> Ingersoll, I... Beak's cold-weather adenoids wake him periodically, 
and he gurgles and his eyes roll up briefly before they level out and he settles back, seeming to stare. Hal creatively visualizes that Smith's velvety backhand is him slow-mo slapping Evan Ingersoll into the opposite (laughs) wall. Ingersoll's parents founded the Rhode Island version of the service where you order groceries by TP and teenagers in fleets of station wagons bring them out to you instead of supermarkets. They invented DoorDash. What the point is, is that we'd all just spent three hours playing challenges against each other in scrotum-tightening cold, assailing each other, trying to take away each other's spots on the squads, trying to defend them against each other's assaults. The system's got inequality as an axiom. We know where we stand entirely in relation to one another. John Wayne's over me, and I'm over Struck and Shaw, who two years back were both over me, but under trolched and shacked, and are now over Trolch, who as of today is over Freer, who's substantially over shacked, who can't beat anyone in the room except Pemulus since his knee and Crohn's disease got so much worse and is barely hanging on in terms of ranking and is showing incredible balls just hanging on. Freer beat me four and two in the quarters of the U.S. Clays two summers ago, and now he's on the B squad and five slots below me, six slots, if Trolch can still beat him when they play again after that illness default. I am over Blot. I am over Ingersoll, Idris Arslanian nods. Well, Blot's just ten, Idris, and you're under Chu, who's on an odd year and is under Postlethwaite, and Blot's under Beak and Ingersoll simply by virtue of age division. I know just where I stand at all times, muses Ingersoll. (laughs) Cybervision edits its visualization sequences with a melt filter, so Stan Smith's follow-through loops seamlessly into his backswing for the exact same next stroke. The transitions are gauzy and dreamlike. Hal struggles to hike himself up onto his elbows. We're all on each other's food chain, all of us. It's an individual sport. Welcome to the meaning of individual. We're each deeply alone here. It's what we all have in common, this aloneness. E unibus plurum, Ingersoll muses. <laughs> Hal looks from face to face. Ingersoll's face is completely devoid of eyebrows and is round and dustily freckled, not unlike a Mrs. Clark pancake. So how can we also be together? How can we be friends? How can Ingersoll root for Arslanian in Idris's singles at the Port Washington thing when, if Idris loses, Ingersoll gets to challenge for his spot again? I do not require his root, for I am ready. (laughs) Arslanian bears canines. Well, that's the whole point. How can we be friends? Even if we all live and eat and shower and play together, how can we keep from being 136 deeply alone people all jammed together? You're talking about community. This is a community spiel. I think alienation, Arslanian says, <laughs> rolling the profile over to signify he's talking to Ingersoll. Existential individuality, frequently referred to in the West. Solipsism. <laughs> his upper lip goes up and down over his teeth. Hal says, in a nutshell, what we're talking about here is loneliness. Blot looks about ready to cry. Beak's palsied eyes and little limb spasms signify a troubling dream. Blot rubs his nose furiously with the heel of his hand. That is also what I do when I'm trying not to cry in public. (laughs) Bust your nose. I miss my dog, Ingersoll concedes. (laughs) Ah, Hal rolls onto one elbow to hike a finger in the air. Ah, 
but then so noticed the instant group cohesion that formed itself around all the pissing and moaning down there, why don't you? Blot. You, Kent. This was your question. The what looks like sadism, the sexual, sexual, the skeletal stress, the fatigue, the suffering unites us. They want to let us sit around and bitch together. After a bad PM set, we all, however briefly, get to feel we have a common enemy. This is their gift to us, their medicine. Nothing brings you together like a common enemy. <laughs> Mr. DeLint, Dr. Tavis, Stitt, DeLint, Watson, Nwangi, Thode, all Stitt's henchmen and henchwomen. I hate them, Blot <laughs> cries out. <laughs> Sounds like they should form a student's union. Yeah. <laughs> my my tennis uh, academy has unionized. <laughs> my, te- my tennis students M sixteen M seventeen M seventeen M eighteen have unionized. Did you put some tennis on the television? I did. Cool. Thanks. It didn't randomly switch to it. Nice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I hate them. Block cries out, and you've been here this long, and you still think this hatred's an accident. <laughs> Purchase a clue, Kent Blot, Arslanian says. <laughs> the large and economy size clue, Blot, Ingersoll chimes. It's very clueless. Beak sits As if, Hal. <laughs> Hal interjected. As if. Beak sits up and says, God, no, not with pliers, and, <laughs> and collapses back again, again with a spit bubble. Hal is pretending incredulity. You guys haven't noticed yet the way Stitt's whole staff gets progressively more foul-tempered and sadistic as an important competitive week comes up? Ingersoll up on one elbow at Blot. The Port Washington meet, ID Day, the Tucson Whataburger the week after. They want us in absolute top shape, Blot. Hal lies back and lets Smith's ballet de say loosen his facial muscles again, staring. Shit, Ingersoll, we're all in top shape already. That's not it. That's the least of it. We're off the charts shape-wise. Ingersoll, the average North American kid can't even do one pull-up, according to Nwangi. Nor, nor can the average North American 32-year-old. 30. <laughs> Arslanian points down at his own chest. 28 pull-ups. <laughs> the point, Hal says softly, is that it's not about the physical anymore, men. The physical stuff's just pro forma. It's the heads they're working on here, boys. Day and year in and out. A whole program. It'll help your attitude to look for evidence of design. They always give us something to hate. Really hate together as big stuff looms. The dreaded May drills during finals before the summer tour. The post-Christmas crackdown before Australia. The November freeze-a-thon. The snot-fest. The delay in upping the lung and getting us undercover. A common enemy. I may despise KB Freer or, can't quite resist, Evan Ingersoll <laughs> or Jenny Bash, but we despise Stitt's men. The double matches on top of runs, the insensitivity to exams, the repetition, the stress, the loneliness, but we get together and bitch. All of a sudden, we're giving something group expression, a community voice. Community, Evan. Oh, they're cunning. They give themselves up to our dislike calculate our breaking points and aim for just over them, then send us into the locker room with an unstructured 45 before Big Buddy sessions. Accident? Random happenstance? You guys ever see evidence of the tiniest lack of coolly calculated structure around here? (laughs) The structure is what I hate the most of all, Ingersoll says. They know what's going on, Blot says, bouncing a little on his tailbone. They want us to get together and complain. 
oh, they're cunning, Ingersoll says. <laughs> Hal curls himself a bit on one elbow to put in a small plug of Kodiak. He can't tell whether Ingersoll's being insolent. He lies there very slack, visualizing Smith pounding overheads down onto Ingersoll's skull. Hal, some weeks back, had acquiesced to Lyle's diagnosis that Hal filed... Do you know, oh, have we talked about Lyle yet? No, I don't think so. Okay. Lyle's diagnosis that it, Hal might finds... might have been mentioned, but I don't think we've gotten into mm-hmm. who or what Lyle is. Hal finds Ingersoll, this smart, soft, caustic kid with a big, soft, eyebrowless face and unwrinkled thumb joints with the runty, cuddled look of a mama's boy from way back. A quick intelligence he squanders on an insatiable need to advance some impression of himself. That the kid so repels Hal because Hal sees in the kid certain parts of himself he can't or won't accept. None of this ever occurs to Hal when Ingersoll's in the room. He wishes him ill. <laughs> he, he's mentioned this one kid that he that he like instinctively hates before, right? One of his friends traded him Ingersoll uh-huh. for his big buddies. And, and then he, he came because to understand the, the why friend, he like, intensely... Yeah. Le- the friend was like, I want to hurt this guy. <laughs> and now he also he has, does. He has a punchable face, yeah. as, uh, as we would say. Blot and Arslanian are looking at him. Are you okay? <laughs> he is tired, Arslanian says. Ingersoll drums idly on his own ribcage. <laughs> Hal usually gets secretly high so regularly these days this year that if by dinner time he hasn't gotten high yet that day, his mouth begins to fill with spit, some rebound effect from B. Hope's desiccating action, and his eyes start to water as if he's just yawned. The smokeless tobacco started almost as an excuse to spit sometimes. <laughs> Hal's struck by the fact that he really... Uh, for the most part, believes what he said about loneliness and the structured need for a we here. And this, together with the Ingersoll repulsion and spit flood, makes him uncomfortable again, brooding uncomfortably for a moment on why he gets off on the secrecy of getting high in secret more than on the getting high itself, <laughs> possibly. He it's always, nice to have a little secret. Mm, he always gets the feeling there's some clue to it on the tip of his tongue, some mute and inaccessible part of the cortex. And then he always feels vaguely sick scanning for it the other thing that happens if he doesn't do one hitters sometime before dinner is he feels slightly sick to his stomach and it's hard to eat enough at dinner and then later when he does go off and get off he gets ravenous and goes out to father and son market for candy (laughs) or else floods his eyes with murine and heads down to the headmaster's house for another late dinner with ct and the moms and eats like such a feral animal that the moms say it does something instinctively maternal in her heart good to see him pack it away. (laughs) But then he wakes before dawn with awful indigestion. So the suffering gets less lonely, Blot prompts him. Two curves down the hall in VR5, where the viewer's on the south wall and doesn't get turned on, the Canadian John Wayne's got Lamont Chu and Sleepy T.P. Peterson (laughs) and Kieran McKenna, and Brian Van Vleck. He's talking about developing the concept of tennis mastery, Chu tells the other three. They're on the floor Indian style, Wayne standing with his back against the door, rotating his head to stretch the neck. His point is that progress toward genuine show-caliber mastery is slow, frustrating, humbling, a question of less talent than temperament. Is this right, Mr. Wayne? Chu says... That because you proceed toward mastery through a series of plateaus, so there's like radical improvement up to a certain plateau, and then what looks like a stall 
on the plateau with the only way to get off one of the plateaus and climb up to the next one up ahead is with a whole lot of frustrating, mindless, repetitive practice and patience and hanging in there. Is that Anna Wintour? Yeah, she loves tennis. <laughs> uh, plateau, Wayne says, uh, looking at the ceiling and pushing the back of his head isometrically against the door with an X, plateau. <laughs> pronounced the same. Uh, the inactive viewer's screen is the color of way out over the Atlantic looking straight down on a cold day. Uh, that's the inverse of the sky was the color of a uh, TV turned to static, mm. turned you tuned to a dead channel. The infamous opening line of Neuromancer. Oh, I've forgotten. Uh, Chu's cross-legged posture is textbook. What John's saying is the types who don't hang in there and slog on the patient road toward mastery are basically three types. That's such a good opening line. It just like immediately blends like this, the, 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 the nature and technology into like one brutal image. Sure. Sorry, just musing on that. So let's focus, little buddy. I'm sorry. <laughs> just kidding. Um, three types. You got what he calls your despairing type who's fine as long as he's in the quick improvement stage before a plateau, but then he hits a plateau and sees himself seem to stall, not getting better as fast or even seeming to get a little worse. Yeah, this type gives in to frustration and despair because he hasn't got the humbleness and patience to hang in there and slog, and he can't stand the time he has to put in on plateaus. And what happens? Geronimo, the other kids yell, <laughs> not quite in sync. He bails, right. Chu says he refers to English or to index cards. Wayne's head makes the door rattle slightly. Chu says, "Then you've got your obsessive type." Uh, J.W. says, "So eager to plateau hop, he doesn't even know the word patient, much less humble or slog." And so when he gets stalled at a plateau, he tries to like will and force himself off it by sheer force of work and drill and will and practice. Drilling and obsessively honing and working more and more, as in frantically, and he overdoes it and gets hurt. And pretty soon he's all chronically messed up with injuries mm -hmm. and he hobbles around on the court, still obsessively overworking, until finally he's hardly even able to walk or swing and his ranking plummets until finally 1 p.m. there's a little knock on his door and it's Delint. Here's for a little chat about your progress here at ETA. Bonsai, El Balo, <laughs> see ya. <laughs> then what John considers maybe the worst type because it can cunningly masquerade as patience and humble frustration. You've got the complacent type who improves radically until he hits a plateau and is content with the radical improvement he's made to get to the plateau and doesn't mind staying at the plateau because it's comfortable and familiar. That sounds like me. Ooh, and he doesn't worry about getting off it. And pretty soon you find he's designed a whole game around compensating for the weaknesses and chinks in the armor the given plateau represents in his game still. His whole game is based on the plateau now. And little by little, guys he used to beat start beating him, locating the chinks of the plateau, and his rank starts to slide, but he'll say he doesn't care. He says he's in it for the love of the game, and he always smiles, but there gets to be something sort of tight and hangdog about his smile. And he always smiles and is real nice to everybody and real good to have around, but he keeps staying where he is while other guys hop plateau and he gets beat more and more, but he's content until one day there's a quiet knock at the door. It's Delint, 
a quiet chat. Garanzai. <laughs> Van Vleck looks up at Wayne, who's now turned away with his hands against the doorframe, shoving one leg back, stretching the right calf. This is your advice, Mr. Wayne, sir? This isn't Chu palming himself off as you again? They all want to know how he, Wayne does it. Number two continentally in 18s at just 17, and very likely number one after the Whataburger, and already getting calls from pro-serve agents, Tavis has lateral Alice Moore screen. Wayne's the most sought-after big buddy at ETA. You have to apply for Wayne as buddy by random drawing. <laughs> Lamont Chu and T.P. Peterson are sending Van Vleck optical daggers as Wayne turns around to stretch a hip flexor and says he said pretty much all he has to say. Totter, I admire your savvy. I admire a kid's certain worldly skepticism, no matter how misplaced it is here. So even though it fucks me on the odds, so there's now like practically no way I can come out square. <laughs> uh, M. Pemulus says in VR2, so we, we moved, uh, Subdorm C, sitting on the very edge of the divan with a few feet of beige shag between him and his four kids, all cross-legged on cushions. He says, I'll reward your worldly skepticism this once <laughs> by letting you try it with only two. So, like, I've got just two cards here. And I hold them up, one in each hand. <laughs> he stops abruptly, knocks his temple with the heel of his hand that holds Jack. Whoa, what am I thinking? We all got to put in our five ski here first. Otis P. Lord clears his throat. The ante. Or it's called the pot, says Todd Postlethwaite, laying a five on the little pile. Jesus, I'm thinking, sweet Jesus, what am I getting into with these kids that speak the lingo like veteran Jersey Shore croupiers? Croupier, <laughs> croupiers? I think so. I don't know. Uh, croupiers. Croupiers? I got to be missing a widget or something. The fuck, though? You know what I'm saying? So, Todd, man, you choose just one of the cards. I got to work on Pemulus's voice because he's got a distinct one. We got the clubby jack and the spade queen here, and you choose... And so down they both go, them face down. And I like swirl them around on the floor a little. Not shuffle, but swirl. So they're in plain view the whole time. And you follow the card you chose around and around. Which like with three cards, maybe I've got some chance you lose track. But with two? With just two? Ted Schacht in VR3 at his giant plasticine oral demonstrator. <laughs> the huge dental mock-up. White planks of teeth and obscene pink gums. <laughs> twine-sized floss anchored around both wrists. Are you tracking? Yes, I'm getting what's going on. Yes. The vital thing here, gentlemen, being not the force or how often you rotate to particulate-free <laughs> floss, but the motion, see? A soft, sawing motion, gently up and down both incipitals of the enamel, <laughs> demonstrating down the side of a bicuspid big as the kid's head, the plasticine gum stuff yielding with sick sucking sounds. Oh. Shacked five kids all either glazed looking or glued to their watches secondhand. And then here's the key. Here's the thing so few people understand. Down below the ostensible gum line into the basal recessions at either side of the gingival mound that obtrudes oh. between the teeth. Down below where your most pernicious particulates hide and breathe. <laughs> Troll as, a, as a floss enthusiast, I'm sure that you enjoyed that. I I am. I've run out of floss. I need to get more. Uh, Trolch holds court in his, Pemulus, and Shaq's room in Subdorm C, supinely upright against both of his and one of Shaq's pillows, the vaporizer chugging, one of his kids <laughs> holding Kleenex at the ready. Trolch is the one who was sick earlier today. Yes. Boys, what it is, I'll tell you, it's repetition. 
First, last, always. It's hearing the same motivational stuff over and over till sheer repetitive weight makes it sink down into the gut. It's making the same pivots and lunges and strokes over and over again. At you boys' age, it's reps for their own sake, putting results on the back burner. Why they never give anybody the boot for insufficient progress under 14. It's repetitive movements and emotions for their own sake, over and over until the accretive weight of the reps accretive uh, of the reps sinks the movements themselves down under your leg consciousness into the more nether regions through repetition they sink and soak into the hardware the cps the machine language the autonomous the autonomical part that makes you breathe and sweat it's no accident they say you eat sleep breathe tennis here these are autonomical uh accretive means accumulating uh, call could well no, I fucked this up. Uh, through sheer mindless re- repeated motions, the machine language of the muscles, until you can do it without thinking about it. Play at like fourteen, give and take. They figure here, just do it. <laughs> Forget about is there a point? Of course, there's no point. The point of repetition is there is no point. Wait until it soaks into the hardware, and then see the way this frees up your head—a whole shitload of headspace you don't need. For the mechanics anymore after they've sunk in now the mechanics are wired in hardwired in this frees the head in the most remarkable ways just wait you start thinking a whole different way now playing the court might as well be inside you <laughs> the ball stops being a ball the, the ball real, the yeah. real tennis was inside you all along is it in you <laughs> the ball starts being something that you just know ought to be in the air spinning this is when they start getting you on about concentration Right now, of course, you have to concentrate. There's no choice. It's not wired down into the language yet. You have to think about it every time you do. But wait till 14 or 15. Then they see you as being like at one of the crucial plateaus. 15 tops. Then the concentration and character shit starts. Then they really stump- Then they really come after you. This is the crucial plateau where character starts to matter. Focus. Self-consciousness. The chattering head. The cackling voices. The choking issue. Fear versus whatever isn't fear. Self-image doubts, reluctances, little tight-lipped, cold-footed men inside your mind, (laughs) cackling about fear and doubt, chinks in the mental armor. As the t-shirt says, no fear. And now these start to matter. 13 at the earliest. Staff looks at a range of 13 to 15. Also the age of manhood rituals in various cultures. (laughs) Think about it. Until then, repetition. Until then, you might as well be machines here, is their view. You're just going through the motions. Think about the phrase, going through the motions, wiring in them into the motherboard. You guys don't know how good you've got it right now. James Albrecht Lockley Struck Jr. of Orinda, California, prefers one long Q&A type interface with VR8's viewer playing ambient stuff against relaxation vistas of surf, shimmering ponds, fields of nodding wheat. Time for about mm, maybe two more, me droogies. Uh, say it's close and the guy starts kertwanging you. Balls are way in and he's calling them out. You can't believe the, fr- the flagrancy of it. Implicit, this is a no-linesman situation, Traub, you're saying. Creepily blue-eyed odorn talent kelpsa <laughs> chimes in. This is early rounds, the kind they give you only two balls, honor systems. All of a sudden, there he is, kertwanging on you. It happens. I know it happens. Traub says, whether he's outright kertwanging or just head-fucking you, do you start kertwanging back, tit for tat? What do you do? Do we assume there's a crowd? Early round, remote court, no witnesses. You're on your own out there. Do you kertwang back? (laughs) You do not kertwang back. 
You play the calls, not a word, keep smiling. If you still win, you'll have grown inside as a person. If you lose, if you lose, you do something private and unpleasant to his water jug right before his next round. (laughs) A couple of the kids have notebooks and studious nods. Struck is a prized tactician, very formal in BB group sessions, something scholarly and detached about him his charges often revere. We can discuss private water jug unpleasantness on Friday, Struck says, <laughs> looking at his watch. A hand raised by the violently cross-eyed Carl Whale, age 13. Acknowledgement from Struck. Say you have to fart. <laughs> you're serious, Mobes, are you? Jim, sir, say you're playing out there and suddenly you have to fart. It feels like one of those real hot, nasty, pressurized ones. I get the picture. Now some empathic murmurs exchange looks. Josh Gopnik is nodding very intensely. Struck stands very straight to the right of the viewer, hands behind his back like an Oxford Don. I mean the kind that's like real urgent. Whale looks briefly around him. But that it's not impossible, it's actually a need to go to the bathroom instead, masquerading as a fart. (laughs) Now five heads are nodding, pained, urgent, clearly a vexing sub-14 issue. Struck examines a cuticle. Meaning defecate is what you mean then, Mobes. Go to the bathroom? Gopnik looks up. Carl's saying the kind where you don't know what to do. What if you think you have to fart, but it's really that you have to shit? As in, it's a competitive situation. It's not a situation where you can go bearing down and forcing and seeing what happens. So out of caution, you don't, Gopnik says. Fart, Philip Traub says. But then you've denied yourself an urgent fart and you're running around trying to compete with a terrible, hot, nasty, uncomfortable fart riding around the court inside you. (laughs) Two levels down, Orthostice and his brood, the little librarish circle of soft chairs and lamps in the warm foyer off the front door to subdorm C. And what he says, he says it's about more than tennis, mein Kinder. Mein Kinder, well, it sort of means my family. He eyeballs me right square in the eye and says it's about how to reach down into parts of yourself you didn't know were there and get down in there and live inside these parts. And the only way to get to them? Sacrifice. Suffer. Deny. What are you willing to give? You'll hear him ask if you're privileged to ever get an interface. The call could come at any time. The man wants a mono-to-mono interface. You'll hear him say it over and over. What have you got to give? What are you willing to part with? I see you looking a little pale there, Vagenecht. Is this scary? You bet your pink little pink personal asses it's scary. It's the big time. He'll tell you straight the fuck out. It's about discipline and sacrifice and honor to something way bigger than your personal ass. He'll mention America. He'll talk patriotism. Don't think he won't. He'll talk about its patriotic play that's the high road to the thing. He's not American, but I tell you straight out right here, he makes me proud to be American. Mine kinder. He'll say it's how to learn to be a good American during a time, boys, when America isn't good its own self. Hmm. There's a long pause. The front door is newer than the wood around it. I'd chew fiberglass for that old man. (laughs) The only reason the buddies in VR8 can hear the little burst of applause from the foyer is because Strzok won't hesitate to pause and consider silently as long as he has to. (laughs) <laughs> to the guys, the, or to the kids, the pauses spell dignity and integrity and the still water depth of a guy with nine years at three different academies and who has to shave daily. <laughs> he exhales a slow breath through rounded lips, looking up, off up at the ceiling's guillotine border. Mobes, if it's me, I let it ride. You, you let it, you let it out. Come what may, 
a la contraire. I let it ride around inside all day if I have to. I make an iron rule. Nothing escapes my bottom during play. Not a toot or a whistle. If I play hunched over, I play hunched over. I take the discomfort in the name of dignified caution. And it's when it's especially bad, I look up at the sky between points and I say to the sky, thank you, sir, may I have another? <laughs> thank you, sir, may I have another? Gopnik and Talit Kelpsa are writing this down. Struck says, that's if I want to hang around for the long haul. One side of the gingival mound, then up over the apex <laughs> and down over the other side of the gingival mound, using you should cultivate a certain amount of touch with the string. Now, the big question of character is, do we let a fluke of probably one in a hundred laps in concentration make us throw up our faggy hands and go dragging characteristically back to our dens to lick the whimpering wounds? Or do we narrow our eyes and put out the chin and say, pemulous? We say, pemulous, double or nothing, when the odds remain so almost crazily stacked in our favor today. So they do it on purpose, Beak is asking. Try to make us hate them. Limits and rituals. It's almost time for a communal dinner. Sometimes Mrs. Clark in the kitchen lets Mario ring a triangle with a steel ladle while she rolls back the dining room doors. Uh, they make the servers wear hairnets and little OBGYN-ish gloves. Hal could take out the plug and nip down into the tunnels. Maybe not even all the way down into the pump room. Be only 20 minutes late. He's thinking in an abstract, absent way about limits and rituals. Listening to Block give Beak his aperçu. Like, as in, there is a clear line, a quantifiable difference between need and just strong desire. He has to sit up to spit in the wastebasket. There is a twinge and a tooth on his mouth's left side. <sighs> ah. Ah. Little. Buddies. Buddies. <laughs> teaching, teaching my 13-year-old uh, friends how to floss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Molly, have you ever played tennis? Mm-hmm. I've never played an official game of tennis. I have played, um, I've hit, hit the, the ball, ball back and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, oh, my, I own through my parents a tennis, a tennis racket. racket. Parents, have you played tennis? Yeah, my parents made me go to tennis cl- uh, camp in, a, in one of their many, uh, like their, their tenure quest to find a sport that I would enjoy. You know, one of them that, that was thrust upon me was tennis for a, a summer or two. Just, oh, I was going to say how long. Probably like two summers until it went on to the next one. Basketball camp, baseball camp, tennis camp. Surely the boy will enjoy something. Oh, my God. Absolutely not. I hate, uh, I I had to go to, I, I mean, I played soccer for like literally 11 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, I'm 31 now and I've still played soccer for like a year of my life. It's disturbing. Yeah. And I hated pretty much every minute of it. Uh, and soccer camp but in you the were summer. a good little trooper and didn't rebel against it yeah well it's you're an only child and so you have some flexibility i was one of four and the other three played soccer and therefore I played you, you played soccer as well you're not getting there specialized simply, equipment there was just not enough mom to go around in terms of like giving rides to places <laughs> <laughs> i have to respect that yes uh, um, i mean it's a lot of again the perfect companion book to Infinite Chest is Andre Agassi's memoir. Yeah. Because you really do get the other, the real, a true professional player's opinion of like the mindset of tennis because the mental part of tennis is hell. Yes. Uh, and it seems like it drives him, it drove him partially insane. That like anyone, like not anyone can do the physical stuff. The physical stuff is important, but the mind is what, is what takes you over the top. Or just watch it. The put thing you put on the background is appears to be a doubles match with Federer and Nadal playing together, which I didn't realize they did. Those yes. were like 
the two best. I believe this is the 2017 uh, Laver Cup with uh, Fed- doubles Federer Nadal uh, facing off against Query Sock. <laughs> uh, Bjorn Borg was out there, is coaching Nadal Federer, I believe. That, that guy in the white hair, I believe, is Bjorn Borg. Okay. An, an all-time great sports name. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Anna Wintour is here, apparently. I didn't know that she was involved she in loves, tennis. She loves tennis. Yes. Yeah. I just like looked up from you reading reading and caught the screen and was like, is that Anna Wintour? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, te- tennis is is the most chic sport. It is a very chic sport, and it, it has something over on go- golf, which is like the other like you know sport of of little little princes, petit princes. Yeah, uh, and that golf is like it, it it does take skill, but it's like so uh, athletic that it's uh, I feel like it's unfair to call golf a sport. It's an activity, whereas tennis is absolutely a sport. Yes, you know it is incredibly athletic. And also incredibly skilled. Yeah, it is. It's a. Uh, it's it's chess boxing, as I think was. Uh, it's 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 intellectual and and physical. Yeah, and it's against but, one guy. But also elegant, mm-hmm. you know, um, and tactical. I mean, mm-hmm. it really does have it all. I, I I get it. I mean, I don't really enjoy watching sports, but like I get why people would enjoy tennis. Well, honestly, reading Andre Agassi's. Uh, book yeah, so give ma- us some, give us some, some Agassi deets because we've been teasing this for a while. Yeah, well, I, I almost want to like stream about it and like read it on stream. Yeah, he's born to a um, Iranian Olympic boxer who also likes tennis, but uh, <laughs> Olympic boxer, tennis hobbyist, tennis hobbyist, uh, who m- moved to America, lived in Vegas, uh, like. And was just from an early age, or from not from an early age, from an early dad age, was just like, I'm going to program one of my kids into being a champion tennis player. And so it, Andre Agassi had a lot of natural ability, but it was also his dad just like... Molding him into, into being a Being like champ. an abusive freak. <laughs> and so like Andre Agassi's thing... Not to abuse, but it is just like one of those weird things of being like, I will, I will make my son into a tennis terminator. It's just a type of parenting that I'm not, I like don't... I don't understand it, and yet I guess I could understand that if you were physically great at something and you know what it takes to be physically great at something, yeah. And then you're just like, all right, I produce this little like this little cra- crab, this little <laughs> this little po- I made this little potato, and like I know exactly what I need to get him to do it's, in order to be great. I mean, I can see yourself myself, not myself, oneself getting to that point of being like, you know, if you see like a four-year-old playing tennis and they have like a natural aptitude to it in the sense that they like instinctively get how it is and you're like well they're a child so it left to their own devices they will not make themselves a tennis pro it will require me pushing them to bring out the greatness in them yeah and i mean like like these kids in this book there are a lot of them who are going to be pushed to do this who just end up uh you know spinning out to become what do you say pudgy uh pudgy club pros pros or lawyers and doctors like Mm -hmm. everyone else yeah um, but one out of every you know, 156 or whatever they said went to the school at any given time will become an Andre Agassi. Right. Well, and will be, be, it will become someone that Andre Agassi beats in the first round of a tournament because <laughs> Andre Agassi is one of the greatest tennis players of the world. He's and one then, of, he's and one of like party with Bo Deedle like uh, Andre Agassi was doing. He's one of like like a not even ten guys who've won all four opens. Really? Yeah. Which is to, again that that. Oh, we're going to have to like do a separate episode or something on this book because it's so crazy. Even just like the length of your career and how it he the way he writes it that like winning a tournament 
is both something that feels like kind of inevitable depending on how good you are, mm -hmm. but it is so random because it's an open you are potentially playing like amateurs you're playing like some guy who like gets lucky and just catches you on like a lazy day where you have to fart the entire match and are playing doubled over and you're not at your a game andre agassi one of the last opens he won he it was a rain delay yes yeah, um, i love the story he there was a rain delay and so he had they they predicted four hours for the storm to clear and so he's like great i'm hungry it's not often that i'm hungry on match day because i i have nerves and you need a ton of energy in order to play so anytime that i am hungry on match day i take advantage of it so he went to wendy's and he got a spicy chicken sandwich <laughs> and he housed that sandwich and then the storm immediately blew away and so andre agassi has to play a final of like the australian open <laughs> With, with his, his Wendy's spicy chicken sandwich, <laughs> like raging, in <laughs> raging in his intestines, and that, like, that is what professional life is. Is like, and it's one thing if you're on a football team where it's like forty, like solid dense soldiers and like maybe you have a bad day and it's embarrassing but like someone else is probably also going to have a bad day out there or someone else can cover your ass yeah. you can throw a shitty pass but someone else might have a miracle and catch it no such thing in tennis bro <laughs> it's just you and the other guy it is the true there's a reason why David Foster Wallace cares about this so much is because the human condition is mm -hmm. like the idea of being just you out there every human being dies alone dude sorry well, I'm think like he also, on one like, today I think he also talks about like how the person that you're really beating in tennis is yourself. And I feel like he probably thinks that about his writing, right? Is that he knows mm -hmm. how good he is. And the only person that he's trying to beat with his writing is himself. Yeah, he had no competitors. He wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't checking for those Jonathans, Franzen and Latham and the other one, Saffron Foyer. Saffron Foyer. He's which not one? Jonathan Foster which, which It'd be funny if it was. Uh, which was the one who went insane about Natalie Portman? Saffron Foyer. Saffron Foyer. Yeah. Uh, Big mistake. The the only I would say the only uncanceled uh, Jonathan, literary Jonathan is the board to death one. Um, he seems like Ames? a good guy. Yeah, yeah, and he you know Fiona Apple got a huge profile in the New Yorker when Fetch the Bolt Cutters came out. The writer talked to multiple exes, and uh, she talked shit about P.T. Anderson. She did not really talk shit about Jonathan Ames, who she also dated. Seems like a chill dude. Yeah. Bored to death. Great series. Great Love dude. that show. Yeah. Um. Yeah, no, Franz and Suck, Saffron Foyer got too horny for Natalie Portman. Um, what about Latham? Latham, I think he's okay. He wrote a Talking Heads 33 and a third, and I love, you know how, how much I love the Talking Heads. I do, I do. Listen, dear listener, be assured that I'm a huge Talking Heads fan. Uh, it made me actively dislike the, the album more from how like, turgid and uh, bad it is. I think he wrote the, I think Latham wrote, the 33 and a third on fear of music. And uh, I went in thinking that it was like my, a soft fourth favorite talking heads album and uh, came out never wanting to listen to it again, just from his prose. <laughs> Don't love that. Don't yes. love to see that. Uh, so I've no, never read any of them. Any, anyway, I could anyway, go tennis. Anyone I could go tennis. Everyone. That's one of uh, himself's films. Um, could, could I go on all day about Andre Agassi? Agassi. Yes. Do I need to start a third podcast just about, just about Andre Agassi? The, the uh, Andre Agassi Probably. Cast. I mean, if you did that long enough, you could score an interview with a Agassi. I bet he'd be down. Mm -hmm. he's, I mean, he's busy running his charter school. Whose number did he dive into the pool at Bo Deedle's party to retrieve? Uh, Brooke Shields. Oh, no, 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 no not Brooke Shields. Um, his current wife, Steffi Graf. One of the greatest female tennis players of all time. Oh, okay. But, but he, he, was, he, was, he married to Brooke Shields? 
He was married to Brooke Shields. Wait, I'll, I, I, I can recount this, I suppose, okay, if okay. anyone is still around to listen. Yeah. But he he had just divorced Brooke Shields because their their marriage had fizzled. Um, they didn't. They basically just like didn't give a shit about each other anymore. <laughs> and like finally, it seems came like to one of those that. things where uh, I, this feels like a very '90s style of celebrity culture where it's like they met each other and like probably went on like three dates and it was like, well, it's like 1996 and you're Brooke Shields and I'm Andre Agassi. It just seems like we should get married. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, I'm I'm the I'm the best. You're also kind of the best. Yes. Um. Uh. The best anecdote from that relationship is that she had a guest. Uh. She got a guest slot on Friends, the most popular television show in the world at that time. Yep. Uh, she was playing a stalker of Joey. Okay. And at one point uh, during filming, which Andre came to visit in uh, L.A. to watch, is uh, she put Joey's hand in her mouth. Okay. Which I actually, I, I watched all the episodes of Friends and I actually don't remember this point at all. So. I mean, maybe it was cut out from the final one. Maybe the director of Friends thought it was too intense for Friends. Uh, but Andre witnesses this, didn't realize that it was in the script. Brooke did not disclose that she would be putting uh, Matt LeBlanc's hand in her mouth and he storms off the set, gets into his car, drives from LA back to his home in Vegas and smashes all of his trophies <laughs> because he's in a jealous rage. I'm just imagining staying that white hot angry for the entire higher drive from LA to Vegas that you would still destroy your trophies. Yeah. You think that's a long, that's uh, a long drive, but maybe there, there wasn't traffic. Yeah. I don't know. And he has a fast car. I just, yes. I'm just also imagining Matt LeBlanc having to explain to, uh, to Andre Agassi what acting is. You (laughs) see, we, sometimes we get on screen and we do things that aren't real, (laughs) but we do for the sake of a narrative contained within a script. Right. Uh, uh, anyway, so that 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 relationship was clearly not going to last. But uh, he's had a crush on Steffi Graf for like years and years and years, even while he was married to Brooke Shields. Uh, was sort of closing in on her at various like tournaments where they would cross paths. Finally, uh, she she kind of like ditched her boyfriend, gave him her number on a napkin, and uh, then he flew home, started partying at Bo Deedle's house. Yes, um, jumped into the pool with all of his clothes on realized that the napkin was in the his pants. This is just a, a classic romantic bungle. Needed to call Steffi back because she finally called him and left a message, but she didn't give him... She's like, you have my number. And he's like, ah, oh, fuck, no, I don't. He, in a panic, goes up to Bo Deedle and he's like, I don't care what you need to do. I will pay you any amount of money. Like, please, for the love of God, you need to get your hands on the phone records of your house because I called her earlier today from your phone. And so Bo Deedle is like, done. And it gets his like henchman to call the phone company to like send him the phone record so he can find the phone number to call. <laughs> the 90s are so crazy. Oh, man. Oh, the things we had to do. Partying. Partying with Bo Deedle and Andre Agassi. Anyway, I'll, we might have to. I, I might have, have to, to do like a whole. Make separate, some more content. We might have to this do is an infinite jazz. This is a this is an infinite cast pod jazz. So uh, we might have to do a bonus an and introducing infinite jest and introducing of uh, Andre Agassi. Uh, yeah, all uh, it's the uh, po- podcast creep. But I'm sorry, I can't help it. It sounds great. I I, I, I so loved good. hearing it's, all the. Uh, it's the best book I've written. Or, <laughs> It's the best book I've read this year, probably. Uh, any more we have to say about this segment? I mean, it's just we're just learning more about the Enfield boys. Yeah. They are alienated from themselves through uh, through the prism of tennis. And you can, yeah, you start to get the the like. Struck is like he's 
the play, he's the plagiarist, of course. Mm-hmm. And Strachet has a good relationship. Like Hal's kind of like a moody princeling. Uh, Wayne is like the best player. John Wayne. Pemulus is, is a, uh, Orthos, a hustler. Pemulus is a hustler. Uh, Orthos Dice, who, Ortho the Darkness Dice, is obsessed with shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the other, Shacked is the tent, uh, the dentist. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's kind of a square. He's already looking forward to his uh, n- non-show career as a dentist. And that, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, excited to see how this grows and develops. I honestly forget what's next. So. Uh, I want to pat myself on the back for uh, finishing my uh, first fiction book, my first other fiction book in a while. We, I, do you love fiction books? I love fiction books. I love fiction books. I didn't know who would have known. You love fiction books? You That's love so crazy. Books. No, I love fiction books. I, I uh, finished my first fiction book in a long time today, uh, Dune. So Dune. if you see me online, congratulate me for finally finishing Dune. Um, we have, even though it's 28 degrees outside, we have an outdoor birthday party to attend to. Yeah. Uh, so we'll probably be signing off soon. Uh, I have a stack of gifts to send out that I will be sending out to people soon. We might, when we come back a little later, throw on a movie and, uh, start addressing some, uh, yeah. envelopes. And then we'll put out another episode in time for Cr- Crimbo Weekend. Yeah. We'll do it on the, on Boxing Day? Yeah. Bo- bo- we'll, we'll have boxing a Boxing Day, Day episode up. Um, you know what you suggested we should watch again and maybe talk about mm-hmm. on the show? So watching all this tennis makes me think about it. Um, Seven Days in Hell. Yes, we uh, should. The, the Andy Samberg uh, tennis parody. Def. Okay. Uh, goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>